0: Good morning. We're going to be in uh, First Kings 19. Um, I uh, there's so much of uh, so much of Christianity has this uh, air about it when if we kind of get more. Critical, the you know, there's this attitude sometimes of fake it till you make it, and that's this attitude sometimes in our culture. And you know, take two verses, call me in the morning, happy happy songs, just put on a smile. And what I love about scripture is that if you actually read it, it deals with what it means to be human, because God created us and to be human involves anxiety, depression, tensions, hard things, and so we get to walk into that. Um, I think it's interesting that last week we talked about Solomon and kind of the duplicitous nature, the two sides of him, and the things that get thwarted with money, sex, and power, and chasing after other things, and then this week we get to talk about a guy who even when he was seeking the Lord, things still didn't go the way he thought, and it led to also some personal destruction, some anxiety, some depression. So we're going to be talking about Elijah today. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one that looks like this in the seats in front of you. I'd encourage you to grab it. We want to read the word uh, here. This is, We say this a lot, but I, I can't overemphasize. If we're not gathering and reading the words of God, we're wasting our time. Like, terrible hobby. What a silly reason to gather, because my words will come and go. In fact, I feel super weak and ill-equipped right now. I'm just, man, I'm preaching this message to myself this morning. Uh, I just don't have the happy clappy for you. Uh, I've got a heavy heart right now, and it's just the way things go. And so I'm going to be preaching this to myself this morning, and we're going to wrestle through Elijah. Uh, but grab a Bible, 1 Kings 19. Uh, we're going to look at how the Bible deals with lamenting, heavy things, anxiety, depression, those sort of things. Let's pray. God, guide us as we read your word. May your spirit speak as we uh, put words, put thoughts um, to your word to make sense of what you're trying to speak to us. And we pray that above any words that are said right now that your spirit would give us ears to hear that your spirit would give us eyes to see that we would repent and believe in the gospel, that we would see that Jesus is everything, no matter where we find ourselves. We pray against all the distractions, all the, the evils, all the things preventing us from hearing your word, God, that you would pierce through those things. We love you, we trust you, Father. Amen been going through the, uh, the whole Bible, and instead of a lot of Sundays, we kind of catch you up on where we are, and we ain't got time for that right now. So instead, we'll just let you know that God rose up a people after we rebelled, and we said, we're going to go our own way. We're going to separate from you, God, and do our own thing. Insert sin, and death, and destruction, and chaos. You've seen that in your life. You've been to a funeral. You've been hurt by people. You understand. We did that. We brought that in because of our hearts. That's what the Bible tells us. And then amongst all that, God raises up a family, and eventually they get all these covenantal promises, God promises them things and and God brings about his faithfulness. He keeps bringing good from our evil, tov from rach, we've said, right? Uh, Tov being the Hebrew word for good and rach being the Hebrew word for evil. God keeps bringing that about. And then we're in this kingdom, his temple's there. And then it's like, things are just, are they good or bad? That's like the question of the Bible. Is it Tov or Raw? You can pick any story in the Bible. It's like, well, actually, God is Tov, and everything else is really questionable, and that's why I think that's the point, right? But maybe that for another day. Save that, because we'll probably cover that on the very last sermon of this whole read through the Bible thing. But uh, here we are now with the divided kingdom, and if you understand the story at all, this is so sad, because God's given them all this stuff, and it's just split now, and you've got these kings in the north and kings in the south, and almost all of them are a train Wreck, constant just uh, corruption of power, and sex, and idolatry, and, and money, and all these things. And you end up with Ahab in the north, and he's just kind of a wimpy jerk. Uh, he's no good. He's uh, he's around Jezebel, and it's just not so good. But before we uh, unpack that too much, we're going to read most of First Kings 19. Um, we want to talk about how we're walking into the season of prophets. Just so you all know, we're walking into a time where we're just going to be crash-coursing so many prophets, because the rest of the Bible is is the kingdom falling apart, um, Babylon, Syria just being taken over uh, the kingdoms, and just so much sadness, and then prophets write about it. And one of the phrases I love about prophets um, comes from uh, a scholar, uh, the Bible Project guy, if you're familiar with Tim Mackey. He calls prophets covenant watchdogs, and I think that's such a helpful phrase, because they are. They're here to say, hey, look, look, watch it, like, rah, rah, rah. they're barking at it. They're like, look at the covenant. Look at what we're supposed to be doing. Look at what God said. And everyone's just like, we're going to go our own way. And so that's where we're at. We're uh, at one of them now, Elijah. Man, this, this morning we could have talked about, like, widows and resurrection and boyds, And we had that a story. We had a really cool story about Mount Carmel and fire, which we'll talk a little bit about. But uh, there's this other story about depression, anxiety, and tensions that I think is much more worth covering. Um, before we read 1 Kings Here's a quote from Andy Crouch that I think is really helpful. Andy Crouch is a uh, Christian author. He writes a lot of good stuff. He's kind of a philosopher in some ways as well. Uh, I really like this quote. He says, we're the most powerful generation in history. Ooh, feel it, look around. We're the most powerful people. We're so awesome. We're the most powerful generation in history, but also the loneliest, most anxious, and most depressed. I don't need to point out research though. I started looking it up. I was gonna give you all these depressing statistics. Just look at the world around you, right? Ask your great-grandpa how loneliness, anxiety, and depression happened back in the day and how it happens now. It's clearly on the increase. Every psychology, uh, psychologist, every counselor would tell you, man, it is, we don't even know what to do with the amount of anxiety, loneliness, depression. For the most lonely, most anxious, most depressed, we're meant to flourish in heart, soul, mind, and strength and relationship, yet culture asks us to undermine our personhood, to acquire power. Alright, we're going to look at Elijah's depression, we're going to look at uh, God's gracious comfort to Elijah, and we're going to look at how the Lord speaks to him. Let's get into it. Let's start with Elijah's depression. 1 Kings 18.46-19.3 through uh, And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. Great start. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. She's saying, I'm going to kill you. You have no shot. You are dead, Elijah. It's a huge death threat. He's in the capital, by the way, right now. He hears it's like, dude, you got no shot. You're going to die right? Uh, this is the big, big wig telling him he's going to die. Then he was afraid, as you would be. He was afraid. And he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah, and he left his servant there. Let's, let's just stop for a minute. We got to unpack how we got here. This is really important. So Elijah, he's kind of like us, man. Like, I think, uh, I think it's really relatable that Elijah's like, hey, you think Baal is so big and powerful? Meet me at Mount Carmel. Meet me at Madison Square Garden. We're going to go toe to toe. I'll show you who's really He's just like, I think we can relate that. If we could just say like, hey, you think you think what you're doing is right? Let me show you how awesome God is. He gets this like competitive, like, let's go. So he meets 850 prophets on this mountain, Mount Carmel, and they have this like test. And it's like, hey, can your God consume this stuff with fire? Which seems so stupid for Elijah, because do you know what Baal is the God of? ultimate power but lightning fire like light, but all has this power and so he's like saying hey it's just low hanging fruit i just need your god to just torch this this stuff and so of course these 800 prophets are like yeah, okay, you're going to look real dumb. And then Elijah comes, and he, like, has this this altar he does to the Lord, to Yahweh. And he, he pours water. Man, you should read it. It's such a ridiculous story, and it's supposed to feel sarcastic. It's supposed to feel like it's just, like, the most ridiculous circumstance. He has the wood. He pours all this water on it during a drought. Like, he's just angering people. He's pouring all this water. On it. And then the Lord shows up and consumes it. And the Lord doesn't just consume that, but it consumes the rocks and the ground around it, right? And this, all this stuff is being consumed. It says the ground and the rocks. It's all the, the Hebrew language, is almost like the, the foundations. Everything here is just being consumed by fire. So much so people are like bowing down, like, oh my gosh, heat exhaustion, fire. This is crazy. Clearly, God wins. Checkmate, done deal. And this is why Elijah says, dude, I'm going to tuck in my tunic and I'm going to run to the uh, center of the city. I'm going to run to the capital city because God has done it. All this evil is going to go away. Highest high here. Elijah's pumped. And so we see this fire, see this high, high. He runs to the capital city because the Lord is going to overthrow. Clearly, that's how the story goes. God has appeared with fire. He's done his thing. Elijah gets to kill all these evil prophets and then he runs to the city. But then Jezebel says, no, you're going to die. You don't, you don't get to live. And so Elijah now, he's like, wait a minute. God, weren't you supposed to, don't you? Well, I thought he's got this really high, high, and then low. He runs towards victory and confidence. And then he runs away in fear and defeat. Elijah's a runner, runs both ways because he's so certain God's going to do it. God's got it. He's already done this. Can you relate to this? I mean, come on. You ever had that time in your life where it's like, look, what are, everything is just coming together, right? I got the promotion, I got the, I got the, the kids, I got the, the family life. Everything's going good, and then just immediately it all turns. Just one, one medical diagnosis away, one phone call, one bad night where the kids say something you don't expect, or you argue with your spouse, or your job goes south. It's just like, man, I thought it was, we were supposed, God, you said, and then he just runs, man. He runs to Beersheba. We could talk a lot about Beersheba. I took it out of my notes. so we don't have time. In general, Beersheba is a place where several biblical characters thus far have met with God and cried out for help. I could list six off the top of my head, several characters. And so there's some hint in this story. We talked about links last week. Remember I said about so many of the Bible, 63,000 times or more, the Bible links to itself. The author wants you to hear Beersheba and say, wait a minute, that's where people go to meet with God. Wait a minute, God is the one who takes care of people. So Elijah has some understanding of, wait a minute, I need to go be with God. This is my only hope. So, so in, unless you want to paint Elijah as this big coward who runs and hides, no, he's running to the Lord. He's running to what he knows. He's just really down here. He's got a bad, bad stuff going on. So he runs to Beersheba. Fleeing from this, and he left. Uh, he le- uh, what to say? He left his servant. So that's the last part there in verse uh, three. He left his servant there. If he had a servant because he was a rich man, that'd be like, oh, okay, maybe you just can't afford him anymore. That's not it. He's a prophet. He's got his servant there because part of his ministry. By leaving his servant there, what he's saying to himself, and what the author's trying to say, is he's done. I'm. Gi- I'm. I'm out. I'm giving up this ministry. This. I'm hanging up my cloak. I'm taking off my collar. I'm. I'm done. Like I'm giving up. Last paycheck. I'm out. That's what it's trying to communicate. Absolutely hopeless. First Kings 19, 4 and 5. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die. He asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. I'm no better. And he lied down and slipped under the broom tree. He asks to die. Let that sink in. Elijah thinks he's, he's on this high, high. He just saw God burn up everything and overthrow all these prophets. 850 people go toe to toe with this huge national power. And now, so immediately, he's laying under a tree, crying out to God, saying, I want to die. He's released his servant. All his hope's gone. I think it's interesting, even in his depression, he, he does cry out to the Lord. There's something he said there. He goes to a place where he, he knows he can connect to the Lord, and he cries out to them. And there's so many connections here. I wish we had time for all the applications. Of this. I mean, come on. Like, do you, do you go to church? Is that your understanding? When things hit the fan, when you're struggling, do you gather around people who know the Lord, who can seek the Lord with you? Or do you isolate? You isolate if you're like me, because that's what evil wants. More on that here in a minute. He says, I'm no better than my father's. Elijah has calculated and evaluated the circumstance and said, there's no hope. There's nothing left here. We do the same thing. We'll talk more about this in a minute when Elijah gives more of his explanation. But we esteem, we calculate, we evaluate, we analyze our circumstance. We've got our list, man. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this. There's no hope. And so Elijah wants to die. He's hopeless. It's it's worth mentioning a word about suicide Suicidal ideation. In a room this size, with the amount of people that watch online, I mean, statistically, someone in here has gone through that. Someone this week may be going through that. You may have those thoughts. Elijah doesn't take his own life. Elijah takes his life to God. And there is an interesting link here. Instead of this Adam and Eve, I'm going to take control and eat the fruit myself, you have Elijah laying under the tree in a place where he can commune with God saying, You take my life, God, because I still understand that you have authority. I have no reason to live. I'm hopeless. All my estimations are wrong. But I'm thinking everything stinks here. He says, you take my life. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you haven't said those words. I think someone here this morning needs to hear that. Listen, I, uh, in early 2000s, I remember, I don't remember the exact time, uh, I might have been a senior in high school, but I remember uh, so many good things were going on in my life. Uh, I had several camp experiences, calls to ministry, uh, all Bible studies and like all these things. And all of it accumulated to shorten the story. I ended up leaving school because when you're 18, you feel like you can do whatever you want. So I just walked out of school, drove home, and I, uh, we had guns in my house because that's the kind of world I grew up in. And we were hunters and my dad shoots hearts. and And I stared at a gun cabinet for so long ready to end my life. And I said, I remember so vividly saying, God, I can't please you. I can't please my parents. I can't please my friends at school. I can't please my I this whole list. God, I can't do it. I'm no better than my fathers. I'm nothing. And I ended up sitting on this big chair in our living room. I didn't even turn on the TV, which is such a high school thing to do. I was so used to that, playing video games. And I remember sitting there I don't remember if I was holding a gun or not, but it was, I mean, the goal was to end my life. And I remember sitting there and I fell asleep, I took a nap. And in my dark humor, I say it was the best nap I ever took in my life because I'm alive. Um, but I remember when I woke up that evening, I, God put me around some community and some people who spoke truth in my life. And the rest of my life completely changed. Within a few months, I ended up going ahead and finishing out, taking the ACT, going to college. And then, uh, long story short, here I am. I'm alive. I'm not dead, right? God gave me a nap. And... I think we're going to see something similar in Elijah's life. But I want to say to you, as you have these moments of, I'm no better than, I can't do, look it, I've done all these things. Nothing is good. Everything is hopeless. God, I've calculated and I can point out all the things that aren't going right. All these things that should be and they're not. God's several steps ahead of you. God knew that I would be standing here when I was about to take a nap when I was 18. God knew that I would be marrying Nikki and that we'd have four kids and one on the way. God knew these things would happen. And so he led me to take a nap and and here I am evil wants you to be hopeless. And maybe the suicide thing is is above you. Maybe you're in here like, I would never do that. I'm above those feelings. That's fine. Whatever. All of us, listen, all of us are one bad car wreck and a few prescription drugs away from becoming addiction uh, addicts. So, you know, don't, don't sit here like you're above everything here. Like your life can change in an instant. Elijah's life changed in an instant. And so he has this situation Evil wants you to be hopeless. The world, the flesh, and the devil want you to be hopeless, isolated, and alone. Because when you're alone, you can justify that there's nothing left. There's no reason to be alive. I find it interesting that to believe that you're alone and live in that place is almost like a prideful defense mechanism of our flesh to say, I figured it out. I know how the world actually works, so I can decide. And I'm not here to say that your anxiety and your depression isn't clinical. We'll get there here in a minute. Thank God for medications. Thank God for counselors. We'll be there here in a minute. I am saying that the root of pride is in all things to say, hey, I figured this out. And so we isolate and we feel alone We hold on to our our understandings that we're all alone because it gives us a false sense of power that we figured out. But if we humbly accept that we're not alone, what it means is that we have to accept that there's other people in our life that we should seek counsel from, that, that we might have other people that could say something. Evil hates this because it means that people could point us to Jesus. So Elijah thinks he's alone. You might think you're alone, but the truth is you're not alone. Because... We see how Yahweh responds to Elijah. 1 Kings 9, verse 5. And behold, it's a Hebrew word that means look, pay attention. It's a big word. It's an exciting word. When you see behold, look at how many times behold comes up in Scripture. How many times God says, behold, look, pay attention. An angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate, drank, and lied down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of the food. Forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. We'll talk about that here in a minute. What does God do first for Elijah? Put the verse up there. Let's see. What does God do? He sends an angel to what? You can say it. It's underlined. To touch him. To touch him. The angel of the Lord touches him. Then he cooks for him. He doesn't say, fear not. Thus saith the Lord. That's not where the angels are. He doesn't even say, yo, bro, you want to talk about it, man? He touches him. He says, hey, I got some food. I cooked you some food. He provides for his needs. He's not just meeting a spiritual need. Man, we can talk about this phrase all day long. We have this understanding that we're all divided, that these things are spiritual and these things are not. Man, if you're in the youth group for the last three years, four years, you've heard me say this a ton. We have this understanding of uh, secular and spiritual, right? And they're just this chasm between them. What if everything is spiritual? What if everything is forming you either into the image of Christ, into what it means to really be human, or away from what it means to be human? You're either becoming wise and in Christ you're becoming a fool. You're either living or you're dying. It's a constant trajectory. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they died, but it took them another 800 something years to die. Why? Because they were walking in that. It's a constant pattern. You are trajecting towards life, you're trajecting towards death. Spiritual needs are not just reading Bible verses. It's not just being at church. All those those things are essential and they're super helpful. There's a God here who says, I'm going to meet needs that are so connected and so more meaningful than what you understand. We could learn a lot from this church. It's not that we don't need spiritual needs. But what if all those things are so much more connected? Listen, we tend to find our worldview very quickly in how we respond to grief, anxiety, depression. There are some people that we would say, I think we got a slide here. There's some people that would say, hey, it's just physical. Your junk is just physical. What you need is a pill, maybe some exercises, some breathing. Like it's it's just physical, man. That's all you got. Some people say it's psychological. You got to go see a counselor. Go get some counseling. Hurry. Or dude, this is just spiritual. Take two verses and call me in the morning. You need some spiritual disciplines. Have you said the prayer? Have you done the dance? Have you gone to church? How many times have you not looked at porn? Like we just start assessing these spiritual disciplines. But the God of the Bible says, I don't reduce humanity to just one of those things. The God of the Bible meets a holistic need. We can't reduce humans just to physical, just to psychological, just to spiritual, just to mental, just to emotional. When we reduce that, we miss out because the God of the Bible never does this. In fact, if you look and see how God deals with this, he deals with Elijah with presence, with touch, with food, with encouragement. He listens to him. He speaks his word to him. He then reveals truth to him and he leads him on. This is so much more than just saying, here's your food, or go read some verses, or why don't you just pray and meditate? There's a holistic approach here, and I think it's so important for us to recognize that, because sometimes you need a walk. Sometimes you need a nap. Sometimes you need to eat a good meal, because God is everything. All good things objectively come from the objective source. Maybe think about it like this. Maybe you're sitting there like, well, what are you saying? Are you saying, saying that, that we don't have these spiritual I Think about this. this. This might help. Matthew 22. Let's go to Jesus. What does Jesus say? He's asked, what is the most important thing? God, Jesus, what is the greatest law? What is the greatest commandment? What does Jesus say? Love the Lord, Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and... Love your neighbor as yourself, right? This gets back to the Andy Crouch quote, right? What did he say? He said, we're meant to flourish in heart, soul, mind, strength, and relationship. Wouldn't it be interesting if God giving the greatest commandment, first through Moses and through Torah, but then Jesus just siphons it down to this, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. What if God understands what it means to be human can dwindle down to your heart, soul, mind, strength, and relationships? What if this is what it means to be human? And what if the evil and the culture and the ways that your flesh works the world is to just hyper-focus on one or to adulterate all of them so you completely miss that there's a God who created you and formed you in these ways? If you look at the heart, soul, mind, and strength of these relationships in love, look at what God does to Elijah. His heart, he touches him. Touch is gonna be on all of them because touch is so much more than physical. You know that if you've ever had in intimate relationship with someone. Someone gives you a hug. It's so much more than just that physical thing. But in his heart, he's touched. He reminds Elijah that his work is not over, and the Lord still wants him as a prophet. He touches his soul. He touches him, and he allows Elijah to rest. He doesn't give up on him, and he moves a uh, lot, and he doesn't move on, as Elijah would have him do. He touches his mind, where he gives him a new purpose. He addresses his concern. He speaks truth to him. He reminds him in his memory of, hey, do you remember Beersheba? Do you remember the 40-day trek to Mount Sinai, which was also Mount Horeb? Do you Remember these things? The tree? There are all these hints there. He touches his mind. He, uh, he gives him his strength when he touches him. He feeds him. He gives him strength for the journey and sends him on a mission with purpose. He gives him a relationship. So he touches him, he gives him his presence, and he gives him communions with others on mission. Listen, quick thought in your life. Do you evaluate your life by understanding what it means to be human is to love? and be loved in your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to have relationships with others as God would intend you to, to love them as Christ has loved us. Do you evaluate the stuffs and things in your life that way? This is a side note, but I think it's so important. Do you approach your depression and anxiety as, as, hey, how is this affecting my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and my relationships with others? In love. How, how Do you approach your life this way? Your, your hobbies. This is what you were created for, church. When you decide, you know what I need... I need three hours of Call of Duty, I need three shots of whiskey, and I need to go hunting, then you need to ask yourself, how do those things connect with your heart, soul, mind, and strength in relationships? I would argue hunting does all of them because I'm pro-hunting, but beside the point, there are some things that are just junk. Stop going to these things to say you can control your life, you can figure these things out. The Lord knows what you need. And I think it's interesting when we see in the story, the comfort the Lord provides isn't just a specific word of go do this, but he feeds him. He touches him. He gives him his presence. If you love someone, you've ever comforted them. This makes sense to you. If you've ever had someone who died in your life, you know, it's not just what people say. It's the food they made you. It's the hugs they gave you. It's their presence. God has wired us to be this way. Church. Please don't reduce God to these spiritual things we throw at people. Because what if to be spiritual is so much bigger than that? What if what it means to be human involves your heart, soul, mind, and strength in relationships? we got to move on. God provides the ultimate comfort to Elijah uh, through these things. And it reminds us as we read this of the ultimate comforter, which is Jesus Man, there's not time to go through all these verses, but Jesus says so many different things that should comfort us. He says, come to me, I'll give you rest. Matthew 11. He says, I have all authority. I'm with you always. Matthew 28. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12. Cast your anxieties on Him, the Lord. For He, the Lord, cares for you. 1 Peter 5. Jesus is the ultimate comforter. Say, Jesus is my comforter. Jesus is the ultimate comforter. On the one hand... We need more than just spiritual counsel because we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We're beautifully complex as image bearers. On the other hand, we certainly need spiritual counsel because what do we see Elijah do here? He goes on a 40-day trek seeking the Lord. And I just pose to you in your depression, anxiety, in your high highs, when things are going really great, where do you find yourself on a 40-day journey of seeking the Lord? Do you have a posture in your life saying, man, I am in a pattern of seeking the Lord so much so that it is measured in days of seeking the Lord. We need both. The Lord speaks to Elijah. We don't have time to cover all this, but we're going to hit on some of it. 1 Kings 19, 9-13. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? So interesting. He says that twice. He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, some translations say jealous, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. More on that later. And the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. A great and strong wind tore the mountain and broke it into pieces and the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. We have to say it that powerfully because we don't get earthquakes much here and it's like we don't know what they are, but like it's a terrifying thing if you've known or been around an earthquake. Then an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, fire. The sound of a low whisper. Or does anyone know what the King James says? Still, still small voice. Oof. Sound of a whisper, the still small voice. And when Elijah heard it, The still small voice, the whisper. He wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. He's at Mount Horeb here, uh, also Mount Sinai, where Israel gathered, where they camped for a year, where God gave them Torahs. This is a big deal. This is a big place. The mountain of God, right? This is a huge place. And he's there, and he's in a cave. Uh, Other translations would say a cleft, right? You know who else was in a cleft of a mountain meeting with God personally? Moses right? It's a big deal. Moses was there. And so some scholars would say, hey, there's actually, this is not just a link. This is probably a geographical connection. Like Elijah knew the story. He's in the same cleft. This is where you meet with God. Everything's hitting the fan. He goes on a 40 day trek to meet with the Lord. You should too. Side note. So then he's there. There are so many links to what God has done in this story. The author wants you to know, hey, you remember Beersheba? You remember A 30 Day Journey? Do you remember A Cleft in the Mountain? It's bursting with links to remind you, look at God, look at God, look at God. Things seem terrible, look to the Lord, because He's the one who keeps His covenant. He's the one who keeps His promises. And then the Lord says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Do you think God didn't know? Come on. Like, God doesn't ask questions because he needs information. Can you imagine, like, God's like, oh, what are you doing here, Elijah? Fancy that. I didn't see you there. Like, come on. Like, God is listening to him. He's speaking to his heart and saying, I want to hear you. You tell me. You lament. We don't serve a God who sits on a mountain or cloud somewhere that says, come to me, and just cut yourself, and do all this stuff to get to me, because you'll never really do it, but you got to sacrifice. We serve a Lord that pierces through heaven and earth to stand next to us, say, what are you doing here? Let me hear your side. What's on your heart? God is speaking to the deepest parts of Elijah. He listens to him. God wants to listen to you. He listens to Elijah vent, and Elijah's answer, it's hopeless. It's hopeless. By Elijah's estimation, nothing is going right. More on that here in a minute. I want to talk about the earth, wind, and fire, not the band. We have the earthquake, we have wind, we have fire. God comes in this wild variety of forms. The angel, the angel of the Lord, earth, wind, and fire. What is going on? A couple things that I want to point out here that were interesting to me. All these things have been signs of God's presence all through Scripture. I could list tons of references. If you didn't read the Bible, you know. But in general, you know, God appeared in an earthquake several different times. Uh, Jesus' death, uh, also back uh, at uh, Mount Sinai, right? He's appeared as fire several times. Burning bush um, at Mount Carmel, like so many different fires. Pentecost, wind, right? Again, Mount Sinai, Pentecost. Like God appears in all these ways. But also, you can find several stories where God appears as these things as his judgment, as fire as great wind, as an earthquake that swallows people up. These things are God's judgment. They're not safe, they're not tame, and they're so difficult to define. I read all sorts of scholars on this. They're just like, well, he showed up in this way for this reason. Then other scholars are like, I know, it was for this reason. We don't understand because God's above us. We have a limitation of knowledge, limitation of anger, but he is Lord. You can't put God in a box. Here's a, here's a side note. Here's a reason, church, why we need each other. Because God appears to Moses in a burning bush. And, and he appears to, uh, to, uh, on Mount Sinai with earthquake and wind. And he appears to Elijah here as all these things, but actually specifically whispers to him. You get these different forms of God coming at it because he's so big, he's so massive. When Lazarus dies, one lady asks him, Lord, you should have been here. And he comforts her. <laughs> When another one asks, he he kind of rebukes her. and He says, no, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus gives both comfort and rebuke over and over. We need each other because we experience this giant Lord that we can hardly define, that we're trying to make sense of and seek him. We, there's several things that we know for certain. But we experience him together. This is why Ephesians 4 says that we're growing as one body into the maturity of Christ, fitted together with King Jesus as the head. We need each other. It's very possible that Charlie has a very uh, different experience with the Lord than I do this week, and we need each other. Because if our only understanding of God was just how Charlie's experienced God, then maybe we'd be missing something. And God's here to say, You can't put me in a box. Because I'm an earthquake, but I'm not in the earthquake. I'm fire, but I'm not in the fire. It, you just read it. It says the Lord appeared, but then it specifically says he wasn't in those things. Blows your Western mind because you're logically like, wait, he was in those things, but he wasn't in those things. What? That's not how it works. You can't be there, and not be there at the same time. But he's God. He's not contained to those things. Catch this. Elijah was shielded. He was shielded from the earthquake, from the wind, from the fire. After the earthquake, the wind, and the fire, after he hears the still small voice, the whisper, then he goes out. The Lord calls him out, but before he can get out, earthquake, and it emphasizes, it shatters the rocks. It's cragulating and crippling and destroying the rocks. And then there's this wind, and it's powerful, and Elijah can't go out because there's winds there. And then there's a fire, and of course he can't go out. And then after a whisper, after he's been shielded, he covers his face, and he walks out. These things that have been used as God's judgment, Elijah would have known this because he knows the links. He sees all the connections. Elijah's shielded from these things. The rock took all the wind, all the earthquake, and all the fire. Church, Jesus is the rock. Say, Jesus is the rock. In Mark 9, Jesus has his famous transfiguration. Who's there with Jesus and his transfiguration? Not the disciples. Who are the two bigwigs? Moses and, hey, you know where Moses and Elijah also were? The cleft of the rock. It's too good. Come on. See the links. Look what God's doing here. Look what he's communicating. You know what Moses and Elijah saw when they stood before Jesus? They saw the rock that had always been shielding them from God's judgment. They saw the rock that would one day take away all the sin of the world because that's who Jesus is. And so all this junk in your life that God wants to judge you over, that should separate you from God. God is perfect and powerful and holy. You can't contain earthquakes. You can't contain the wind. You can't contain fire. Because we constantly have news sources that we can't control these things. God is not tame. You can't put him in a box and his judgment will wreck you because he's holy and perfect. But Jesus stands to say, I'm the rock. I'm the one that takes on the brokenness. I'm the one that takes on the the judgment of God. Jesus is the rock so that we can have a right relationship with the Lord. Jesus has always been the rock that shielded them and that shields me, that shields you, that shields us. Jesus is the rock. He took all the judgment on himself. The Bible tells us by his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. Luke twenty two nineteen 19 through 20. Jesus is doing the Lord's Supper. More on that here in a minute. He took the bread, and we had given it. He broke it. He said, this is my body, which is given to you broke it. Broke the bread. Catch the symbolism. This is my body that is given for you. It's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he pours the cup and after they've eaten, this is the cup that is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. Matthew, Jesus says, this is the blood. This is my blood that is spilled for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the ultimate comfort. And this is why, because He's our rock. This is why Jesus can say, come to me, all you who are heavy and weary late. Come to me, all you who are broken and, and destroyed and, and so burdened by the wheels of life. And I will give you rest. This is why Peter can write, cast your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. This is why I can say that my strength is made perfect in your weakness because when you are weak, He is strong because Jesus is the rock. He took the judgment for us that if we put our faith in Him, we would be seen as righteous. We would be shielded from God's judgment, just as Elijah was. In 1 Kings nineteen ten and 14, Elijah gives his answer to the Lord. He speaks and he says, man, I've been so zealous for you and all these people are dead and there's no one left but me. It's just me alone and there's nothing to do. We got no hope. It's all awful, God. It is awful. I'm alone. Everyone's dead. Are you looking around? Like, he's so upset because Elijah is, is convinced that he's estimated and esteemed the situation rightly. This is how we approach things. This is how we get hopeless. We think we've got it all figured out. We look around, and in our brokenness, we decide it's all hopeless. We isolate, and we've got nothing left. This is where we lead to anxiety, depression, hopelessness. Elijah's absolutely wrong about his situation, and we'll see why. Look what God says after Elijah's like, look at how I figured it out. I know what's going on, God. 1 Kings 19, verses 14, verses 15, sorry. And the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be the king of Syria and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, And you shall anoint to be the king of over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Haziel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000. Say 7,000. It's a big number. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah says, I've been zealous for the Lord and they've killed your prophets and they've tore down your altars and I alone am left. And God says, you don't see things. You don't know what you don't know. You're not eternal. In fact, it turns out that God's not just two steps ahead of you. God is eternally forever and ever and ever steps ahead of you. So much that we don't have language for this. We throw out words like providence and sovereignty, and we talk about all these different theological concepts with doctrine, but we don't understand how God is so much outside of time and inside of time, and he's out here, but then he still interacts with us. God is ahead of you. Say, God is ahead of me. Whatever circumstances in your mind right now that you can't figure out, whatever thing is weighing you down that's suppressing you, God comes and he says, hey, you know what? I've got this pagan king, his We don't have time to talk about this guy. But I've got this pagan king that I'm going to raise up. And I've also got Jehu. You know who Jehu is? I don't really either. It's a weird name. But I've got Jehu going on from Nimshi. And then also I've got Elisha. And these guys are going to kill all the people that they don't equally kill because they're going to spread around and they're going to cover each other's back. I've also got 7,000. Elijah, you are not alone. You are not alone. Hopeless. That is the message that the Lord tells Elijah. And in our despair and our anxiety, we say, I'm alone and hopeless. It's all over, God. I got nothing. And God says, You don't know what you don't know. I need to hear that this morning because I have reason to be anxious. I have reason to be hurt. I have reason to worry. But I don't see what the Lord does does, to see. I don't see things the way he sees things. I don't know Jehu and Hazi. I don't know the things in my life that God's going to lead. But I can tell you that in my experience following the Lord, I constantly look it back and say, how did I get here? How is God this good? How is the Lord everything he says he is and more? You don't know what you don't know. And as you assume and esteem and equate and calculate your situations, please take a giant pill of humility with that and look to the Lord. Open your hands and say, I don't know what I don't know. You are Lord. I am not. I trust you and allow the Lord to comfort you. Follow the pattern here. Elijah was depressed. He seeks the Lord honestly and passionately tells him how he feels. He laments. He comes open with God. He's comforted by the Lord in a multifaceted way in in his entire humanity. He's comforted by the Lord. He hears the word of the Lord, which pierces through all the judgment, all the other things going on. It's the whisper of God that can pierce hearts. Nothing else can pierce hearts and melt your heart like the word of the Lord. That's the message here. We don't have time to unpack that, but he hears the word of the Lord he accepts the truth over his own understanding and feelings. And then he goes and he does the next right thing as the Lord leads. Here's what I want to land on. Where do you fall on that list? Like Maybe you're like, man, I'm in the depressed, anxious stage. I'm trying to seek the Lord. Maybe I'm struggling with doing it honestly and passionately. Or, man, I'm, I'm kind of comforted by the Lord. I'm, I'd like to be comforted by the Lord. Maybe you've heard from the Lord and you're like, Nah. I don't want to do those things. Maybe you don't want to accept the truth that the Lord speaks. You're hearing it right now. I'm speaking through the scripture. You're like, you don't know me, pastor. Shut up. You don't know my life. You're dumb. Scripture's dumb. I'm gonna do my own thing. How's that working for you? Are you going and you're doing the next right thing? God gives him the next right thing to do. Maybe your next right thing is to show up to church and be comforted by God's people. Because Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our comfort. And he's in each of us. And we bind together to grow to the maturity of Christ. Maybe your next thing is to read scripture. How do we look to the Lord and his comfort? Every week, man, prayer, scripture, and church. I'm going to come back to those things. Measure your life by your relationship with those things. How are you growing with God in intimate prayer, relationship, conversation? How are you growing in community with his people? Because he created you to not just love him, but to love others you can't love him without loving others. And you can't love others without loving him. Therefore, you need the church. Look around. We need each other. How are you growing in scripture? Here's the big question as we land. I can't get past this. This is what I, as I kept reading this, even as I read it now, God shows up to Elijah and he says, what are you doing here? It's an existential question. God doesn't need information. He wants to get to Elijah's heart. What are you doing here? 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 However you want to put the emphasis. God pierces through everything. Say, what are you doing here? It reminds me of when Jesus says, what are you seeking? John chapter one, hear these verses. I think it's so fascinating. The next day, again, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Boof, there's a huge phrase. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus, which is kind of a bummer. Like, hey, look, there's the Lamb of God. See you, John. Right? So, poor John. Whatever. So, look, they go and they see Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, what are you seeking? Oh, hello, what are you seeking? Looks right at them. And they say, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Implying, can we be with you? Can we stay with you? And Jesus says, come and see. Come and you will see. That Greek phrase means, let's hang out. Follow me. Come be with me. Church, people watching at home, anyone, everyone, God is asking you two questions. What are you doing here? What are you seeking? Where's your heart at? Because God wants to comfort all of you. He wants to be with you. He's done everything to shield you from judgment, to give you right relationship with him through Jesus, because Jesus has all authority. He's the one that died bearing your sin, your rebellion, your punishment. And he rose again to defeat it so that through faith in him, that you could have eternal life. You could have a right relationship with God. You could have a right relationship with others. And he says, what are you doing here? What are you seeking? As we move into a time of response, there's a few things I want you to consider. This morning, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. As we read earlier, he was broken. His body was broken for us. His blood was spilled for us. And we'll talk about the Lord's Supper here in a minute. During the response time, you can come and get the elements up here. And we'll talk about that as we celebrate that. But as you do, I want you to open your hands and ask the Lord, what am I doing here? What am I seeking? Because we truly are a very, very, very powerful generation in all of history. And, and just make the word generation be very broad. Everyone in this room, all of you, from the oldest person to the youngest person. In this time in history, we have more power than we've ever had. And we're more lonely, anxious, and depressed. We're all struggling. Suicide rates skyrocketing. Medicaid anxiety and depression rates skyrocketing. What are you doing here? What are you seeking? Jesus says follow me, come and see, look to me, look to Jesus. That's the answer. God says, look to me, come to the mountain of God. Spend 40 days to get there if you must, but it's so important that you look to him. Behold, look to him. He wants to comfort you. He wants to fill your need because he's already shielded you with the rock Jesus. As you grab the elements this morning, open your hands and ask the Lord, what am I doing here? What am I seeking? Am I looking to Jesus in all areas of my life? We're going to pray and then we'll have our time response and you can come get the elements for the Lord's Supper. Amen. Father, thank you for this time. God, we pray that you would speak in this moment. As we have pause, as we take time to breathe, to remember that it's your breath that gives us life. It's your animating force. As we open our hands, as we remember all that Jesus did, it was life, death, and resurrection, ascension. God, I pray your spirit would move in us how we ought to respond. That for those here who haven't given their life to Christ, those who are watching from home that don't know Jesus, those of us struggling with anxiety, depression, those of us who are going through suicidal ideations, all these awful things, God, that you would pull us out of isolation. That you would pull us out of the things that keep us from you, the evil that is separating us from you. We could open our hands and hear you ask us, what are you doing here? What are you seeking? God, may we look to Jesus. May we look to you, Jesus. Thank you for giving us life. Thank you for the lives that you're changing, for the hearts you're speaking to To this moment, God. We thank you. We want to worship you. We want to seek you. May your spirit move in our hearts now. Break us from all distraction. Break us from anything that would keep us from seeking you, from the evil, from the isolations, God. We denounce all those things and we look to Jesus with open hands. May we see your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you need to pray, if you need to respond in some way, I'll be down here as well.